The Energy Gang is brought to you by C-Power. Imagine reading a book written by 19 experts with a total of 300 years of experience. Well, that book is here for the energy pros. It's called Demand Side Energy Management in the Time of COVID, and it takes a peek at eight of the biggest commercial industries in North America, revealing key energy management strategies that organizations executed during 2020. You can find that book by going to thecpowerway.com slash 2021. We're also brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is meeting the growing calls for deep decarbonization with constant innovation. Even as the pandemic changed and crippled so many areas of our lives in 2020, SunGrow delivered its technology on time while keeping an eye toward what the future of clean energy will need. Find out more about SunGrow's inverters and cutting-edge R&D at sungrowpower.com. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week, natural gas bans are the newest flashpoint in the energy transition. What does it mean for the Electrify Everything movement and the gas industry's public relations battle? Then, how do we build back better for everybody? We'll look at how Biden's recent stimulus and climate agenda could mend America's growing wealth and race divide. Plus, it's been a year since the start of the pandemic. What transformed? What didn't? What did we get right? What did we get wrong? We'll revisit the last 12 months. Catherine Hamilton is here. She's our regular co-host and chair of 38 North Solutions. Hey, Catherine. Hey. How is life after Jigger? Well, um, you know, that last episode was rough. It was that was a tough one to do. But I'm so excited about this week. I know because we have our friend of the show, Danelle Baird, the CEO and founder of Block Power as our guest co-host. Hey, Danelle. Super excited to be here with you guys. This is incredible. How's everything going? Thanks for being here. Uh, couldn't be more delighted. Uh, things are going great, as well as can be under tough circumstances for all of us, but super excited to jump into the conversation with you all today. Absolutely. So most of our loyal listeners will know by now that our longtime co-host, Jigger Shaw, is now working in a senior position at the Department of Energy. So we are bringing on thinkers and doers from all around the industry to help us dig in to the latest news uh, tailored to their expertise. Danelle was actually featured on our January 14th episode of What It Takes. For, so for those who haven't listened, go back and you know hear Danelle's story. Um, but, but Danelle, tell our listeners, what does Block Power do? So we are a climate tech startup at Block Power. Uh, we built software and financial tools to analyze, finance, and project manage the electrification or decarbonization uh, of urban buildings. So we're removing the fossil fuel equipment that's used for heating and cooling and hot water, and we're replacing it with all electric, uh, clean energy, um, heat pumps, and other kinds of equipment that reduces fossil fuel use. And while we're doing that, we're looking to lower utility bill costs, um, improve air quality, create local jobs. And so, yeah, we analyze and finance those projects. And hence our conversation about the uh, flashpoint with the gas industry and building electrification. And I think you'll have some insight there into how that impacts the, the market. But you are the lucky person who gets to join us for our episode closest to the one year anniversary of the pandemic. 
So we're going to talk a little bit about the last year of experiences, how it influenced our thinking on the energy transition, any predictions we may have had, what we got right, what we got wrong. You know, I remember last year, it was February 29th, and I was wandering around Shaw's supermarket, and I just looked back at my credit card bill, and I spent $307.65 on canned goods. And I ordered a month's worth of my uh, dog's medication, and I hunkered down thinking, okay, it'll be a couple of months, and here we still are. I've been in you know, a state of lockdown <laughs> or modified lockdown since. And I can remember in late February wandering around the grocery store thinking, oh my gosh, people have no idea what is coming. And, uh, you know, then the lockdowns began two weeks later. Danelle, do you have a particular story of the, those weeks or moments when everything kind of changed? Well, it was one of my worst <laughs> birthday celebrations ever. My, 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 I'm, a, I'm a March 12th baby. And, uh, oh, so the, the pandemic was oof. declared on March 11th. Correct. <laughs> and uh, Yikes. there was a, you know, as a New Yorker, there was the National Guard had been called in to the suburbs north of New York City, and they weren't like covering it in the local news. And so my wife and I were kind of piecing it together. And she works in Midtown in a law firm. And then a, a, a lawyer, I think, in the building next door was the first guy in the city to get really sick. And so we were at this miserable birthday dinner on, on, on March 12th. And kind of halfway through the dinner, we're like, we're, we're going to cut this short. Just give us the check. We got to go home and pack. And we packed overnight and left New York City the next day to live in a cabin in the Catskill Mountains for six months um, to try to to try to wait the pandemic out. So that's that's our story. It was it was a dark time. It was a dark moment. Catherine, what about you? Any memories from that moment? Wow. Yeah, of course, whatever I was doing had to do with regulatory proceedings. <laughs> so my last trip was to Jackson, Mississippi in late February. And then and I knew something was going on. A few people were wearing masks. But then my last real meeting was about March 11th. And it was I was meeting with the DC Department of Energy and Environment. And I just remember not knowing whether to shake people's hands. And, and I shook one person's hand. And then when I was leaving the lobby, there was this huge like gallon jug of hand sanitizer that I just like dumped all over myself. And I was like, something is going on. And I don't want to get sick. <laughs> so in the early days, within weeks after the pandemic was declared, we sat on this show and thought through what are the implications for consumer behavior for the way we get around for the way we work what's going to happen with energy usage and i remember jigger being like you know what we're all going to go back to the days you know after the depression when everyone was sewing their clothes together and you know that that certainly <laughs> didn't happen but uh you know it, it was a time for some pretty creative thought about how it would change us and it certainly has changed us in, uh, in in many different ways but i wonder are there any predictions that you all made um, about energy or climate impacts that did or didn't come true. Uh, what about you, Danelle? After after the initial kind of shock wave of the pandemic in New York City had had started to to ebb, and we were no longer abandoning people with heart attacks, you know, on the streets because we didn't have spare paramedics to service them, um, and and. And, and things seemed to be headed in a more stable direction, we had to turn our attention to raising a venture capital round. And so, you know, at that time, you know, May, June, um, had to 
began talking to climate funders about raising a round of capital for our startup. And so I remember thinking at the time, um, and in particular after the George Floyd murder happened, um, I said to myself, I just, you know, there's, there's, there's such an outpouring of like grief uh, from all corners of the country around what happened to Mr. Floyd and just how unfair it was and how, you know, transparent it was um, and how brutal it was. And uh, lots of VCs and climate investors and climate philanthropists started to talk about how they were going to shift focus to more important things than just making the next version of the app. They were going to start focused on climate change. And of course, they were going to start to focus on racial justice. And um, I believed a lot of those declarations. And I I remember setting up conversations with um, philanthropists and climate investors and uh, traditional venture capital investors who were uh, publicly saying, hey, we want to invest in women. We want to invest in founders of color. We're really looking to find ways to address the the racial inequality in the country. And um, I thought that that would come true. I thought that there would be a sea change around race with regard to you know Silicon Valley, uh, climate tech investors, and uh, climate philanthropists. Um, I thought there would be a sea change around that. And, you know, looking back, there there has not been a sea change. Um, as much as I like to complain about uh, the inequities in the venture capital world in Silicon Valley, and I could go on for hours about it, um, you know, 3% of total capital deployed uh, goes to women or founders of color um, in the venture capital world. But even worse than that, about half of that, um, is the percentage of capital that goes to founders of color from climate philanthropists who are people whose organizations and foundations are supposed to be at the cutting edge of inclusivity and diversity and equity um, around you know building the alliance that we need to, to fight climate change. And the climate philanthropists are actually doing far, far worse than the VCs. Uh, and it's pathetic, and 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 I, I'm, I was disappointed to see the math come out and the numbers come out um, that we hadn't made more progress over the last year on that. What do you think is happening there? I think that there's intermediaries between um, the hyper net worth individuals or their descendants who control the capital and the foundations, and there's a set of intermediaries, so their foundation staff. Um, their consultants, their wealth managers who invest their capital, the investment banks that invest the capital from the foundations. Um, and so these folks get their marching orders from the top and the marching orders are, hey, if we want you to invest in more women and, and more people of color and more environmental justice organizations led by women and women of color and people of color. So those are the orders that come down from the top. But uh, basically, by the time that order makes it down to implementation, there's a variety of great reasons um, that that the implementation fails, you know, including, well, you know, the environmental justice organizations led by women of color, you know, they don't have a CFO, they don't have the size and scale, they haven't had three year, 36 months of, you know, audited financials, and so they're not able to take on the amount of capital that we wish to deploy. So there's a variety of great reasons. Um, uh, there, there just has to be more will and I think more courage and more risk taking and more ability to um, be wrong, right? If you if you write a big check to an organization and it kind of doesn't work out, that has to be okay, right? Um, and I think that's what's not happening right now. 
I mean, I think the racial reckoning from the starting last summer was helpful in pushing the the Biden team to adopt climate policy that has like clear equity goals and I think assisted in what we've seen with the latest stimulus package where you know we've seen a massive increase in um in 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 spending on alleviating child poverty and spending on education and there has been a real push in ensuring that a lot of the policies under the Biden administration, both climate and otherwise, have a strong racial fairness component to them. The reckoning on race, as you as you, as you call it, Stephen, um, swept across the entire society. And it is clear that the Biden team, Biden-Harris team, was influenced by that. And a lot of the policies at the federal government are clearly influenced by what happened, which I think is great. And I think at state and municipal and local governments, that has also often been the case, right? Um, I also see amongst large corporations, you know, Starbucks, Microsoft, Apple, Goldman Sachs, right? The best of the best, the leaders in the corporate world are thinking hard and creatively about how their organizations at the top of the business world can respond um, to the crisis, to the pandemic, to the climate crisis, and to the racial um, justice crisis, and to the unemployment crisis, right? The four crises that we all face. Face. So, so, so I agree with you. In the government, in the top of the corporate world, we we do see this reaction and response, which is incredible, right? And it's remarkable. And I, I do think it's going to get down in the history books. That is why it is all the more jarring to me that in the in the climate philanthropy world, we are not seeing that response. It seems like, Donnell, so much of that is structural and it's like like the muscle isn't there. Like those entities have to build muscles to do what we need them to do to to actually work on racial equity and diversity of all types. So I think while you know, a lot of a lot of corporations are doing the right thing and the government is trying to do the right thing too we're gonna we're gonna have to pull some other people along and and help them build those muscles could could not agree more Catherine what about you was there an unexpected development or prediction that you made yeah one thing I talked about I remember at the time when we were sort of first facing covid was that I live very near an airport and it was everything was very quiet I could hear birds in fact birds were like incredibly louder than I'd ever heard birds before. And uh, so I thought a lot about air travel. But what was unexpected to me was just the basic day-to-day commuter travel. So I don't live near a metro line. Um, I take the bus to work every day. It's about an hour and a half round trip. Um, And now I have not taken that since COVID hit, of course. Uh, But that's given me an hour and a half back. Of course, that's an hour and a half more that I work. So I'm working a lot more than I did before. Um, But there's some things I think that aren't going to change. Like I'm not going to be commuting unless I have to go to a meeting anymore. Um, And then the Washington Post had a really interesting article over the weekend that talked about the DC metro area, which is known for its transportation hiccups and delays. And traffic delays dropped by 77%. Congestion dropped by 60%. Um, And people are finding new ways to get to work. I mean, that's not great for public transportation systems, but they're walking and biking. And of course, most of them 
or a lot of them are working virtually. Um, and at any given time previous to COVID, about 10% of the DC workforce was working virtually. Um, and and experts are saying about 20% of that will be, 20% will persist working virtually, but like 90% of people who are able to work virtually want to stay virtual. Um, and about 30% of managers say that worker productivity went up. Um, people are more available if they don't have to be out doing things um, outside of a computer. And a lot of people do, of course, in the service industry and a lot of other industries. Um, those who can be virtual have been much more efficient. And I have found myself being more efficient, but I've also found that I work all the time because there's such a less of a division between home and work. The big question for me is what is going to happen to the office and how will that change commutes? I mean, as someone who's trying to grow their business and think through how you hire people over the next year or two, I have no idea whether we have an in-person office or not. Danelle, what about you? Uh, as like a climate tech startup, do you need to have people in the same building or can you do things remotely? How does it change the way you think about growing the company? Uh, it changes it pretty dramatically. There's some positive, there's some negatives. Um, the negatives are, you know, in an all remote environment, it's hard. I mean, 70% of communication is nonverbal, right? So as you're sizing up a new potential colleague, you do want to get a sense of some of that, you know, nonverbal information um, that that's so valuable um, in, 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 in terms of determining whether someone's going to be a, a great fit for your organization and vice versa. Are you a good fit for them? Um, and so we've kind of slowed down our hiring processes. You know, maybe we had six meetings before hiring someone before. Now it's 15. You know, what are the ways that you can get a sense um, of people? Um, so, 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 so that's been a little trickier. What's been what's been great about it is now we can hire people all over the country. I mean, we have a new colleague that came in last week from Colorado. We got another one started yesterday from San Francisco. Um, and even though we're based in New York, because our headquarters is now virtual, um, we're able to access talented people. So if, if you're in Jackson, Mississippi, or you're in Portland, um, and you're talented, and you share Block Power's mission of decarbonization of buildings um, across urban communities, now we can hire you wherever you are, provided you can make it through our 12-step our interview process. The Energy Gang is brought to you by C-Power. You've heard us talk about this book that C-Power just released. It's called Demand Side Energy Management in the Time of COVID. And it is the perfect resource for people who are in charge of energy spend, energy investments at their organizations in the commercial industrial sector. It takes a peek at eight of the biggest commercial industries in North America and reveals energy management strategies that these organizations executed during 2020, the, a very wild year. The book also breaks down demand response and demand management programs available in five of the nation's open energy markets, as well as those offered by several of the largest electric utilities in deregulated markets in the U.S. Demand-side energy management in the time of COVID is a must-have resource for any commercial and industrial organization striving to optimize their energy use in 2021. Visit thecpowerway.com slash 2021 to download this new book. 
We're also brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables and storage. SunGrow's focus on R&D and service have allowed it to grow significantly in recent years. In 2020 alone, SunGrow deployed 5 gigawatts of inverters to North America, and it did it on time and safely. SunGrow in the past year has joined the RE100 with a commitment to switch its global power needs to 100% renewable energy by 2028. And it's also bringing new innovative solutions to the market. It rolled out a new 3.6 megawatt outdoor central inverter, a flexible option for standalone solar projects or solar plus storage. Its massive R&D task force is pushing the boundaries of innovation to deliver practical solutions for cutting edge solar projects everywhere. To learn more, visit sungrowpower.com. Let's move on now to building electrification, the gas industry, and a brewing conflict. In the 1930s, the gas industry coined the phrase cooking with gas. It spent the better part of a century convincing Americans that natural gas, natural being another industry-constructed term, is the superior way to cook food. And it's now the tip of the spear for the gas industry's campaign against the movement in cities to electrify buildings and ban new natural gas connections. Around the U.S., dozens of cities have created laws banning or limiting new natural gas connections or gas appliances in homes. And suddenly, the gas industry is facing a very real threat. In February, Rebecca Lieber of Mother Jones documented how gas industry groups are paying social media influencers to play up their love of gas stoves, while trying to play down the growing evidence that gas stoves create high levels of indoor air pollution. It's part of a bigger influence campaign made up of Instagram stories, robocalls, and local astroturfing to prevent a gas backlash. And lobbying is also picking up. E&E News reported that over a dozen legislatures in red states have passed or are considering passing laws that would ban gas bans. So is this the next flashpoint in the energy transition? Catherine, why has gas suddenly become a target in localities around the U.S.? Uh, What do you make of the clash we're seeing play out? Yeah, so this is an existential crisis for the gas industry. This is different from net metering for solar because you still on some level need wires to move electricity. Um, in some form. But this, if you and if you get rid of gas hookups in residential neighborhoods, the gas industry loses its business model altogether. So for gas companies that distribute gas to end users, that's industry, power plants, residential and commercial buildings, the total gas revenues are 87% from buildings. Even though buildings are only 30% of the total volume delivered, And of that 87%, 72% is the residential sector. So that is huge for the gas industry. All of those appliances, those stoves, hot water heaters, um, heating systems that are gas, that is the revenue for the gas industry. And the only reason they're starting to talk at all about hydrogen and renewable gas is because of electrification, because they see the end of their business model as they know it, and they are fighting it tooth and nail. Yeah. So what are they doing exactly? Like, what is this campaign to push back against this existential threat? Yeah. So utilities like Southern California Gas are using ratepayer funds. So their customers are paying for lobbying. And it's mostly done through front groups, groups called Californians for Balanced Energy Solutions, for example, to try to make sure that they intervene in dockets, that they stop these bans from happening, and that they create 
a sense from influencers on Instagram, for example, who are all about how natural gas is so great for cooking. It's the preferred option. So they're doing everything they can and they're using funds from their own ratepayers to fight this campaign to electrify. Can we do a campaign for like outdoor solar ovens? I feel like did you got do you do y'all remember the outdoor solar ovens? Those were cool. Uh, we need someone to to get on, in, on Instagram and support those. Um, Danelle, what do you make of the clash? How's this playing out in your eyes? Well, it's 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 all too obvious. Unfortunately, I I cut my teeth as a uh, political organizer in Brooklyn. Uh, in 2005, 2006, 2007, and whether it was a nuclear plant or uh, what, you know, the energy industry is quite savvy. Uh, one of the first phone calls they make whenever there's a political fight is to, you know, the NAACP or some other civic group composed of people of color to see if they can cut a deal um, to, 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 to have vulnerable communities show up and say, hey, we don't want this clean energy change. Uh, we need this nuclear plant. We need, you know, we need, we need, we need the gas system. Um, and so it's, it's just part of the kind of same old playbook that they use. The reason they're still using it is because it's incredibly effective. I mean, it works, right? And, you know, to the earlier point, I'm not complaining about climate philanthropists not giving money to people of color because of like moral concerns about it, you know, whatever. I'm concerned about it because we're going to get our butts kicked by the gas industry because they're really savvy because they're smart enough to know, well, hey, if the climate philanthropists aren't funding communities of color to embrace clean energy, we will fund them to embrace fossil energy. So that's exactly what's happening. It's, you know, been happening for the last 30, 40 years. Uh, And it's really unfortunate seeing it play out. I do think that it's not going to work this time. Um, I think that communities of color understand that clean energy is linked to health it is linked to jobs in a new industry that we can control. It is linked to our opportunity to build wealth. Um, and so I th- I do think that we are going to remain focused on um, figuring out how to help to install, maintain, deploy, and own clean energy infrastructure uh, in communities of color. Now, there is a legitimate argument about, all right, um, and Catherine, I don't, I don't know how you'd react to this, but like... You know, this question of like stranded assets on on the gas grid, right? Of like, well, if all the affluent communities, you know, switch to electricity, then what's left behind on the on, on the gas system are lower income communities and or communities of color. And so they disproportionately would have to pay and kind of they're they're the rate base for the entire gas system now right basically right? to and keep so the infrastructure system running like exactly and so you have your low-income communities that can't afford to participate in the clean energy transition now they have to pay for the entire gas system so there is a legitimate like public policy concern i think that the gas industry is like driven a truck through that and i'm glad that the mother jones folks haven't started to investigate it more important than investigation is what are we going to do to like win this fight so I called Evan Gillespie, who was cited in that, quoted in that Mother Jones story, and he is uh, the Western Region Director for Beyond the Beyond Coal Campaign at the Sierra Club, but he spends a lot of time on electrification and spent a lot of time with me on this. And he said, public opinion is definitely shifting. So if you look at this from just a health and safety rationale, which is the other way to, that you get through codes, right? Those are all about safety. I mean, the reason there are sprinklers in 
office buildings. And the reason we have to have egress windows in new basements is because of codes and standards. And that is super important. And if you look at it from that standpoint, you have three out of five homes violate the Clean Air Act inside the home. Most homes exceed the ozone levels allowed by law outside. These are homes with gas. 42% of kids are more likely to have asthma. And, you know, I'm one of those people who has a gas stove and I was always so proud of my range top because I could cook on it. And when I started hearing these numbers, I've just become terrified. And I've noticed that in my home show watching that um, the Property Brothers are starting to use induction stovetops. And, you know, if we can make those cheap for everybody, I think you can get them at Ikea pretty cheap. That will change public opinion. So I think going at this from a health and safety standpoint and using the code process in that way, in addition to the public opinion process, that's where we're going to get where we need to go. I agree. It's health. We, we have to, you know, indoor air quality sensors that um, let families know that uh, the gas stove is impacting their health and their kids' health. Like, that is the way to win this battle, 100%. Yeah, and remember, codes are, that is like the least you can do. That is the floor from which you operate. So when you have an efficiency code or a building code, that is the least you can do. So part of this is trying to figure out, as Danelle was alluding to, like, how do we get the right people to be at the table in developing these? And how do we develop codes that will really get at the issue? So that perhaps it's instead of outright bans on gas, you set carbon codes that gas will just break the math on. So instead of having an outright ban, you get to it in another way. And I think there are some creative solutions to that. But we have to really work on this because the, a lot of these decisions are made on the local level. So Danelle, your business model is all about electrifying buildings, um, commercial buildings, multifamily housing units, uh, places of worship, community centers. How does this fight impact the way you do business? Is it material to business today? And how do you see it playing out in a way that will influence how you build projects? It's, it's, it's totally material and totally influential um, in terms of the macroeconomics of our industry. You know, we as a tiny startup in Brooklyn have been able to strike, you know, global sweeping agreements with Mitsubishi and Daikon and soon Fujitsu, right? Because they are so excited about what they're seeing from the gas bans um, from municipalities in California and all over the country that they are ramping up their marketing and distribution and installation of all electric heating systems. And the same is happening with, you know, electric stoves, I'm sure. Um, and so, you know, now we have global manufacturers that are su super excited to kind of be a countervailing, you know, force um, to, to, to the gas industry. So that's one. Um, is now we have new aggressive players in the market who are super focused on electrification and decarbonization because of what we're seeing from the policy arena. Um, I'd add, you know, the 100, 120 million existing buildings, those are going to be even harder to get off of fossil fuels. Um, if, if you're building a new building, you got your engineer, you got your architect, and someone tells you it's got to be all electric, not gas, you may huff and puff. But it's pretty easy for you to redesign that building so that it's decarbonized and runs off of electric heat pumps or electric hot water, right? If you have an existing building, what we have to do in Brooklyn and in um, 
you know, Oakland, when we do these projects, we have to go in and, you know, rip out existing uh, ductwork and vents. Um, we have to create a new distribution system in an existing building for electric heat or electric hot water. And so going into a hundred year old building and moving around the pipes and vents and ducts, that can get super expensive. You can run into lead and asbestos and all kinds of construction problems. So it, it is, as Catherine said, much more expensive to do the retrofit than to design it in a new building. But that's a fight that we need to take on right now as well. And, you know, I'm on the board of Sierra Club and they'll tell you every meeting I go in and yell and scream and kick up sand about this because we do need to start regulating the existing buildings as well, particularly in our hyper progressive cities on the coast um, where we can pass this kinds of legislation for existing buildings. Catherine, what do you think? Is this a a bigger fight we're about to see? Yeah, definitely. And Donnell raises a good point, which is that some cities usually have the final say as to what building codes and performance standards that they want to put into place. But there's some states that make it really hard. Massachusetts has made it hard. Texas is about to put a ban on bans. So saying, no, you can't ban natural gas in cities. And so that takes away, you know, the the ability for cities to make those decisions. And I think it's really important for us to focus on making sure that on a local level, you can make decisions that are healthy for their healthier for your communities. So we got to win this fight on the ground. We are these decarbonized buildings are better. They are healthier. They have to be cheaper. And we got to demonstrate that to people that it is better to turn your building into a Tesla like you want to live inside a Tesla, man. You don't want to. You don't want to live in an old, you know, building that burns dinosaurs um, and is making your kids have asthma, right? Um, and so we got to win this fight on the ground and demonstrate to everybody that it's better. So that's that's what we and some of our other industry participants are trying to do. So let's broaden that conversation around what is better. Biden's campaign slogan was "Build Back Better." So how do we do that for more people? The first Trump-era COVID stimulus bill in 2020 gave $2 billion in tax breaks to oil and gas companies, uh, a lot of tax benefits to the richest Americans, and the Federal Reserve bought back hundreds of millions of dollars in junk debt from struggling fossil fuel producers. It was a big piece of the stimulus. And... You know, a lot of fossil fuel extraction companies got benefits while extended unemployment benefits for people ran out and they never got them back until now, until this latest stimulus. Um, This latest package that just passed last week is worth $1.9 trillion. And it focuses on expanding the social safety net to struggling Americans. It's going to expand unemployment benefits, child tax credits, and send money to states to rebuild and reinforce water, sewage, and public transit systems. The Biden team and congressional Democrats are clearly taking a go big or go home approach, knowing they aren't gonna get many more shots to invest at this level. So let's talk about what this current stimulus does, what it means for climate priorities, and maybe what's next for climate legislation, and how do we use this moment to ensure that this kind of spending we're seeing is benefiting the widest number of Americans possible, particularly people of color who've borne the brunt of COVID and industrial pollution. Um, And and so Donnell has been thinking about some of the bigger picture priorities, and Catherine's been following the legislative side. Let's just talk about the legislative side first, Catherine. What's in this latest package, stuff that's related to energy and climate? There's not a whole lot in there, but there are are some consequential pieces of spending. Um, Give us the congressional state of play. Yeah, so the bill that was signed into law and that the president and vice president are now selling across the country— 
does a couple of things that are really important. One is that it will reduce child poverty. It'll cut it, I think, in half. And reducing poverty reduces and relieves pressure on people for a whole host of other things, including energy burden. So lifting people out of poverty is a huge foundational thing we have to do. Um, It saves a lot of public transit systems, which have been really hard hit. There has been obviously, as I discussed, uh, a lack of ridership and the people who ride have to uh, because they have jobs that they have to get to. And so those people will, will be able to continue to move on their transport system. And there was also a provision for farmers of color that I think was really important too, to try to help some of the agriculture industry out there that has really been suffering as well. So that's kind of what the president is right now trying to sell to the American people as they're getting checks into their accounts. Um, but there's a whole nother piece on infrastructure that we can also dig into. Yeah. Uh, the $30 billion in in transit funding is absolutely huge. I mean, that is going to prevent transit agencies from collapsing around the country. And I don't know that that would have happened if we didn't have a Biden administration. So what about what what are the infrastructure priorities going forward, Catherine? I mean, the the congressional Democrats have put together a climate package. They're hoping they can get something else big passed. What comes next? Yeah, so this one, this relief bill was really hard to get done. They had to do it through reconciliation, which meant that it only required 51 votes and the 51st vote was the vice president breaking the tie. So it was really hard to get done. They would like to not have to do that for this next big package that they want to pass. They may end up having to do it. If they did, it would have to be before the end of September because that's that's the end of that reconciliation cycle. But what they're trying to do right now is really go through what's regular order, which is going through the committee process, having hearings, and they're having lots of hearings on climate, on all kinds of recovery um, plans. And really going through a regular process so they can try to get people on both sides of the aisle to embrace these uh, policies, which is really important. You don't want to have to go to a plan where we don't, we're not going to get your vote. We know we're not going to get your vote. So we're just going to move ahead. And so my focus has been trying to get people on both sides of the aisle to agree on a number of things that they're the people that they represent have a lot of stake in. And, and I think we can make some progress. In the end, we may end up to doing the nuclear option of reconciliation. But in the meantime, um, there are a couple of bills. There's the Clean Future Act, which is a more fleshed out version of what the House of Representatives introduced as their climate package last year. The numbers are bigger. It's um, very much about um, making sure that there are investment opportunities. The, the, the accelerator is in there at $100 billion this time. That's the, that's the mechanism to invest in a lot of these technologies. Um, and then there's also a LIFT Act, which is focused on clean energy, broadband infrastructure, and public health infrastructure. That's kind of the specifically infrastructure piece. But as, as the House of Representatives leadership has told me, they really see climate and infrastructure as inextricably linked, and we have to do it together. Um, and we have to do it very holistically. So I see sort of the public policy on climate, on infrastructure, on taxes, clean energy taxes. There's a tax package as well called the Green Act in the House. Um, And then the transportation side all coming together into either a series of bills or one big package um, that you would consider all as infrastructure. 
Danelle, what do you make of this recent stimulus package? I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really encouraged by it. Uh, I'm worried about the partisan nature of the vote. Um, given all the yeah, lessons, no Republicans voted for it. Given the lessons that we learned about how that played out politically um, in 2009, 2010, I was a consultant to the Department of Energy. You know, was a senior staffer on the first Obama campaign, and you know, I remember having conversations around what we thought the political implications would be of of a total partisan 2009 stimulus, and we got our clocks cleaned in 2010. We lost the Congress and we lost the opportunity to do amazing things like, you know, there is a, you know, there's cash for clunkers. Catherine, I don't know if you remember, we were trying to do a cash for caulkers, right? We were going to, if you go to Home Depot and, you know, you buy some energy efficiency equipment, we were going to give you a huge rebate for doing that to, to green your building way back in 2010. And we couldn't get that passed because of the hyperpartisan nature of the whole thing. So I, so, so I am a little worried about the politics of that. And I'm worried about the politics of that extending to climate, because if we have a hyperpartisan climate bill, uh, how much are we actually going to be able to implement? And then have we kind of hardened uh, the opposition to climate? Now, I spend a lot of time trawling around talking to uh, some young Republicans who are concerned about climate and are climate advocates inside the young Republican establishment um billy jam billy graham evangelical christian uh republicans who care about climate as well as young republicans for climate when i talk to them they say that we can get 15 republican votes in support of different kinds of climate infrastructure it can't be labeled climate but it could be labeled smart grid or it could be labeled r&d for nuclear and storage right um, and virtual power plants. Um, and so if you take climate out of it, could you get to a smart grid deal because Republicans are concerned about cybersecurity of the grid and they're seeing what's happening in Houston and you know there's this kind of cybersecurity argument for smart grid while Democrats are pushing a renewables argument for smart grid. And can you do like a narrow package there? That's different from like a big, broad, comprehensive climate change package that um, you know, my colleagues at the Sierra Club or at the Sunrise Movement or Climate Reality Project, you know, that's different. But um, you know, what's what's possible here and what's best for us over the long term in terms of climate. So, just to wrap quickly on that, I would say, really glad that the resources that Biden and Harris are putting back into the cities and states, into our schools, into our healthcare system, into our local governments, like these are critical. Um, you know, in in terms of maintaining our society, being on the brink of collapse, as we move into like more forward looking things about what we need to do moving forward. I do think there's going to have to, we're going to need to take a look at like ownership, like the, the green infrastructure that we intend to finance and install in a, in a proposed climate or infrastructure bill, who owns it, who finances it, who has the jobs, right? Who gets the equity upside and the profits that come out of that? Is there a way to structure it similar to what FDR did with the rural electric co-ops in the 30s and 40s? You know, investor-owned utilities didn't want to didn't want to finance uh, electric transmission lines off in rural Texas or rural Minnesota or wherever. And so they created these, you know, community-owned 
um, nonprofits, these co-ops where the farmers like literally own stock in the utility companies um, that that provide electricity to them. Can we do similar kinds of things with climate infrastructure? And what would be the implication for our politics if we could red state or blue state? There's going to be a set of stakeholders and a constituency uh, for ownership of of clean infrastructure, and so that's that's what I'm interested in talking to people about. I think you're totally right, and I think you have to frame it that way too. Um, that gets at the job issue. That gets um, at a whole host of really locally based issues that I think are super important and that's what people can kind of react to uh, politically. I would say just going and looking at the Clean Future Act and what are all of these pieces and climate that we have to get done, there's some that are going to be easier to get bipartisan support on than others, right? So like a clean energy standard is, I think is going to have a hard time getting a lot of bipartisan support only because it comes across to people as a mandate and Republicans hate that. The Clean Energy and Sustainability Accelerator that I mentioned already has Republicans on it, including Don Young from Alaska, who is not what I would call like, he's not like in the same place as AOC. Let's put it that way. But then there are other things like the industri- like industrial sector and decarbonizing um, industrial processes. And I think there are things like that that people can really get around and that can make a huge difference. Transportation sector, I mean, if the car companies are already moving and the government can help put infrastructure out there for charging, everybody benefits. So I really do believe it's about a narrative. It's about building support that way with stories that are very locally based, but that can have true national impacts. So I've been listening to author Heather McGee on a bunch of podcasts that I listen to, and she wrote this book called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. And as she highlights the impact of institutional racism in policymaking, for example, she talks a lot about the drained pools um, you know, when when racial integration started happening, how a lot of white communities, instead of allowing, um, you know, black kids to swim in their pools, they would just drain the pool. They would rather just decimate the resource altogether. And that is what has happened to the social safety net across the board um, in our national policymaking. And what she says is this recent stimulus and Biden's approach to policymaking and for our purposes, climate policymaking that, that we're starting to see him refill the pool, so to speak. Danelle, how are you thinking about policymaking in this moment as it relates to drained pool politics? You know, my wife and kid and I were driving up to Massachusetts for a family like vacation, and we stopped in some town off the beaten path, like in Rhode Island. And this town had been, it was small. It had been deindustrialized. There's like a tiny main street. This was like a semi rural town. And there are a couple like Caucasian teenagers uh, outside. And I, you know, as a former community organizer, you know, I spent a long time doing it over a decade, could quickly size up a situation, get a sense of what's going on. And I just sensed the same level of like anxiety and desperation from those white teenagers that I saw back in Brownsville, Brooklyn, where I was a community organizer, which is where Mike Tyson grew up in one neighborhood over from where I grew up. Like the desperation was the same, right? And um, that just really struck me. It, it, it had been a while so that, since I'd been exposed to that. Um, 
Um, the, the second thing is, you know, at, at my company, our response to the pandemic, you know, we're 100% focused on clean energy, but our clients in the Bronx do not have internet. And so they contacted us at the beginning of the pandemic and said, look, we love clean energy. Yes, we want to continue to decarbonize all our buildings. We do not have Wi-Fi. We got seniors. We got adults who need to file for unemployment or work remotely. We got kids who need to learn remotely. We do not have internet. And I was like, what do you mean? It's New York City. Like, what do you mean you don't have internet? Do we need like a grant so you can pay Time Warner? Like, what's the deal? And they're like, there are people in the Bronx who they have the $125 a month to pay for internet access. They, they do not have broadband access to their building, as in Time Warner did not pay to run fiber optic cable underground like to huge parts of the Bronx. And so it is just like not available, right, in the way that we traditionally think of Internet infrastructure being available. So this is the richest city in the country, one of the most important cities in the world, and 27 percent of New York City residents don't have broadband access, right, in 2021. So... What does it look like to solve for that? And I genuinely believe that we can close the hyper-partisan political divide by employing people to work on infrastructure, whether it's broadband, whether it's decarbonizing and doing the retrofits and all the construction jobs that come out of all the complex complexity of the projects that Catherine and I have been talking about of, you know, moving existing buildings from fossil fuels to all electric. When we employ people to do that and give them an ownership stake in the financial returns from those projects, I just think that's giving people an economic stake. And I think that's going to transcend the hyper-partisanship or, or the, the hyper-racialization that we see in the country now. And when we talk about the shredded so- social safety net, like, social security is not partisan, right? Like, it, 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 it transcends race lines. It transcends partisanship. We need climate infrastructure policy that does that as well. And so, to me, that's how we need to be thinking about it. And if we do that, it's going to fill up everybody's pool. Maybe everybody's pool is in their own backyard. It's not a it's not a community pool. That's fine. Um, that will be a way of providing resources and equity, not just in terms of like social justice equity, but like equity in terms of like stock ownership of a share of a corporation. And I think if we can get to that in terms of climate infrastructure, um, that's one of the ways to build a bridge back and you know get out of this mess we're all in. All right. We are at the end of the show. It is time for Free Electrons. This is the moment where we talk about something novel we've been reading, something happening in our work lives, our daily lives. doesn't necessarily have to be energy or climate related, but it often is. Danelle, you're our guest co-host. You're up first. What's your Free Electron? Totally cynically, we have whether or not a policy comes out of the Biden-Harris team that is, is going to work or be bipartisan, we are trying to think through how the private sector can finance uh, clean energy infrastructure across the country at scale. So we have a new crowdfunding campaign, which I'm thrilled about. We want regular Americans to invest with one another, to electrify and decarbonize their local buildings, your kid's school, your library. We think we've found a way to do it without breaking any laws. That's that's what we're focused on. <laughs> How can people find out more? Uh, they can go to our website, blockpower.io, and I think we've got like a landing page or an alert that describes how um, we, we did the legal work to let Americans co-invest with one another in local clean energy projects. So super excited about it. Right on. 
Catherine, what's your free electron? Yeah, so this is different for me. This is not a report I'm going to cite. Um, I spend time recharging, not reading anything about energy. I do things like read literary fiction. I listen to music. And a couple of things that I read and listened to recently really made me think a lot more about coal country. Now, I'm from the Blue Ridge. I'm not from coal country, but some of my family lives in southwestern Virginia. And so I think a lot about people who have been left behind and who don't have access to things and have and have been in that same situation for generations. So there are two things. One is that I read a book by Jojo Moyes called The Giver of Stars. And the book was really a story about women um, a, who are in a true program, which was done by the Works Progress Administration called the Pack Horse Librarian Program, where women were given books to take to like 100,000 people in rural Kentucky to increase literacy. And they went to hollers all over the place where people did not have access to libraries at all and delivered books and magazines. And it was really interesting. So the book was a great story. And it also had a huge undercurrent about the coal industry and what it did to that area and to the people there. So it was interesting that coal kind of crept into it, um, even though it was really about books. Um, And the other is much more overtly about coal. And that is that last year, Steve Earle and the Dukes, Steve Earle is a great singer songwriter, released an album called Ghosts of West Virginia. And it was commemorating the 2010 West Virginia mining explosion that took 29 lives. And it's not political, it's not preachy, but it is a really soulful, really powerful record that's worth listening to. Mm. Some of the best folk music has come out of coal country, so I'll have to give that a listen. Uh, While you're going to blockpower.io and checking out that crowdfunding campaign, you can also go to a website called podcastersdeclare.com. And that is a campaign that three podcasters in Australia put together to push Apple to create a climate category. And I think it's a really well thought out campaign. They've got hundreds and hundreds of podcasters, people who run shows, who've signed the letter. It's an open letter that any listener or podcast creator can sign to encourage Apple to create a new category around climate change. Now, I have some thoughts on this. Firstly, I think that This is a good negotiating tool, right? I think it's important to go to Apple and say, this is what we want. I personally think maybe an outcome could be an environment category because there's a lot of other stuff that's not climate related that is environmental related that's wrapped up in health and wellness or, you know, uh, eating, fitness, um, travel that it's like, you know, environment related that. I think could be really important for Apple to create a category around. But either way, it's really important. And if you care about pushing Apple, which is the industry standard for pushing all these other platforms to change their categories, to make climate an important part of their distribution, you should go sign this letter. It's at podcastersdeclare.com. So kudos to those folks who put together that campaign. Cool. That's great. I think we're at the end of the show. Danelle, how do you feel? How did it go? I have no idea. good? don't feel good i feel terrible i hope i haven't let you guys down i hope it, i hope i hope i haven't brought shame upon my family and my race and uh yeah but we'll we'll see when the podcast comes out i guess how do you this guys is where feel editing work editing works it's magic let me tell you <laughs> no i was delighted to join you guys and i learned so much thanks so much oh this was awesome so much fun absolutely Catherine hamilton is my co-host Danelle Baird was our guest co-host if you want to suggest show ideas guest co-host or give us a shout out the best place to do that is on Twitter thanks a lot for listening 
If you want to show your support, help us grow, send out the word on Twitter or social media, send a link to a friend or colleague, or give us a rating and review at Apple. And remember, Apple should have a climate category, so go to Podcasters Declare. We can be found anywhere you get your podcasts, and we will be with you next week as always. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. Talk to you soon.